There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 290. And today, myself, Spencer Newharth, and Tony Peterson divulge some of our greatest deer hunting failures and then explore what we learn from them. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. I am in Montana at the Meat Eater headquarters to my right, Spencer Newarth. To my left in a roundabout way is Tony Peterson. We just did a whole half day of recording some videos, which will be coming out on the Meat Eater YouTube channel at some point here soon. Um, not sure when that'll be in comparison to when this podcast comes out, so I'll keep it vague, but a pretty cool breakdown of some different hunting ideas throughout the year that the three of us put together that I'm excited for y'all to check out. When that does come out, I will definitely be letting you know exactly where to find it when it's out there, but it got us thinking about a number of things because we were sitting around this morning talking about hunting certain properties. How would you hunt this one? How would you hunt this one? What would you do here? And it got me thinking about a specific hunt that I was on not too long ago that just seemed like a sure thing. Like I felt like I'd hunted some areas similar to this state. I had some experience. I had time in the spring to go to this place, scout it, shed hunt it, some stuff. I had some good intel. I thought it was slam dunk. And I was so confident that I paired two different states together. I was like, I'm going to kill a buck in this state, and then I'm going to go over the border, kill a buck in the other state, and it'll be easy. I know what I'm doing. And then we completely got our asses handed to us and we didn't see a single shooter until we did make a move far to a totally different area, but, um, big time failure. And this brought to mind for all three of us, the fact that we've all had a whole lot of failures. Well, big time failure seems a little aggressive Okay, because (laughs) you kill the buck like three days before this big time failure. True. So, so yeah, I succeeded in Montana. I failed in North Dakota. Yep. So that is true. And, and and we could you could even argue, this is a good interesting question that is going to sidetrack me a little bit. But I had someone, a friend of mine, posted on Instagram the other day, and and wanted people's opinions. If you fail to fill a tag on a hunt, you go on a hunt and you don't fill the tag, 
is that a failure? And he argued strongly that it is. And that if you really? say, yeah, and he said, if you, and I'm paraphrasing and I'm, you know, I'm not going to get quite his sentiment right, but the basic sentiment was that, you know, if, if you're not actively trying, if you're not going to do everything you possibly can, if you're not already doing, putting it all out there to fill that tag, then you're just making excuses for yourself. And if you don't call that a failure, then it's like giving participation trophies to kids these days. What's his point? So you should be, be real with yourself. What are you going out there to do? You're going out there to kill an animal, to kill a deer. If you don't do it, if you pretend that's not a failure, you're kidding yourself. So what is your thought, Tony? Uh, if you don't fill the tag, is that a failure? I think he's bananas. Um, if you, you know, you could go out there and make every possible good decision and work your butt off and do everything right and not kill. Yeah. It's bow, you know, it's, it's hunting. So I don't know. I, I don't follow that line of reasoning. I, I think, I think sort of parallel to what he's saying is, yeah, try hard. You know, if this is your thing and you really like it, don't, don't, don't allow yourself to make a bunch of excuses to not try and, mm-hmm. and, and get after it. But, you know, I mean, the, the measure of success or failure being the, the punch tag is bananas. You know, there's, there's so much to it. And, you know, I feel this, you know, I'm sitting here with Spencer over here and he's just a young pup. You know, we've talked about this before. <laughs> Still got a little eggshell on his back. He's just a young guy, but you've got, you've got a youngster you're uh-huh. watching out for and trying to teach how to touch fish and stuff. And, you know, I'm sitting here with two seven-year-olds and I look at it and I'm like, the experience matters. You know, I mean, it, the, it's, it's awesome to go kill big bucks. Toss them, go kill little bucks, does whatever. But you know, a year down the road, that just—it's it, not as important. It's fun to remember about it, but it's like you remember the experiences overall. And yeah. like the hunt you're talking about out there in North Dakota, I mean, that's that's one of the coolest places you could go to hunt. Yeah, like you—you you can go out there and not kill a deer and have an awesome experience. And I don't know how you'd label that a failure. Yeah, I know what you're saying, and I feel the same way. Um, but I also feel like it took me time to get to that point. Like for a lot of years, I felt like I was going through like a proving it to myself or proving it to other people phase. Like somehow had to establish credibility, even like in my own head, like, yeah, I can do this. And I really took it hard when hunts didn't go well, really stressed, really, you know, I I think it's only the last couple of years that I lost a a pretty good degree of that stress. Like the year, not last year, but the year before, didn't kill a single buck that year because I was after Holyfield like crazy, spent so much time. And I, w- I felt pretty darn okay about it for the first time. I was like, I don't care. I didn't kill any other bucks, but that doesn't matter. But if that had happened the year before or the year before that, I would have been stressing. What are people going to say? Well, I, I, I'm not able to walk the walk that I talk. I was like, I think it was like confidence issues and stuff. Yep. But at some point in everyone's journey, you have to, A, you, you build confidence. And then also I think we all for many of us, learn not to care about what other people think too. Yep. And just start doing things for yourself and not for others. Because um, nobody really cares what you shoot. They don't. Uh-huh. And if, well, and if we're being honest about this stuff, you know, if, you, if your litmus test for, you know, success or failure on this hunt is whether you kill something, we fail, as bow hunters especially, we fail almost every single time we hunt. Yeah. I mean, it's like... You know, I, we probably should figure it out at some point, but it's like, what, 1% of the time you kill something, 2% of the yeah. time? So probably. you're failing 98% of the You can't look at it that way. That's crazy. Yeah, I was telling Tony before this recording, we were talking about hunting in Montana this year and stuff, and uh, I was telling him about elk hunting. I'd give myself a 
0.5% chance to kill an elk with my bow this year because it's so foreign and yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but I, I will certainly not consider the season a failure if I don't kill one because I think in the context of what it is and my experience, um, there's no way there's that's a failure if I don't get one. But if I'm like thinking about a rifle hunt in South Dakota on the property that I've hunted for all my life, if I had that tag and I didn't kill a deer, I would consider that a failure because I feel like I have such an advantage. I know the ground so well. I have a weapon in my hand that can shoot 300 yards. I absolutely did something wrong or messed up if yeah. I failed to kill a buck. So in that context, I would then say I failed because I feel like I, I have a huge advantage. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is if you put the training wheels back on your bike, you shouldn't tip over? Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yep. And the reason I bring this whole topic up is because I know for a long time, um, you know, before, well, even once I started Wired to Hunt, right, growing up, consumed a lot of hunting media. I remember getting up Saturday morning and watched like the hunting shows on TNT mm-hmm. back in the day, Jackie Bushman and whatever else it was back then. Um, and then moving into like, adulthood, watching the stuff that's been running over the last 10 years, 99% of the time you see a whole lot of big deer hitting the ground. It just seems so easy. These guys seem so flawless. They seem so good. And then even talking to people on the podcast, there's a lot of people that come on the podcast we talked to that are just at least seem like absolute killers. I mean, ice cold studs. This stuff's just easy for them. Every single year they get it done. And then I was finding myself like, holy crap, how come I can't do that? How come I keep screwing up like this? And I, I know I'm not the only one who ever feels that way. I know over the years, I've heard from many, many, many other people, there's a whole lot of folks out there that struggle with that too. We make so many different mistakes. And, and I, I guess one thing, if there's anything that maybe has made Wired to Hunt a little bit successful, and I've said this before, but I've gotten this feedback, it's that I've always shared all my failures. And my friend Matt once said that, talking about me, he said, you've cornered the market on failure. Like you've done, <laughs> you've done the best job at talking about failures and screw ups and stuff like that. And he, and he found that refreshing. It was nice to see that. Um, so the point being, I thought today we all, I don't, I don't know whose idea it was, but it was a good idea. Whoever's idea it was that we could just talk all day, or at least all episode about some of our failures, kind of lay out our dirty laundry on the table, talk about some of the biggest mistakes and screw ups we've made and maybe you get some help from the other two guys here. Maybe you talk through some ideas. What could we have done differently? Has it happened to you guys too? This will be like a little bit of a group therapy session. All right. We're going to talk through our problems, see if we can figure something out coming out of it. And, and I'm betting there's going to be some other people listening that are going to say, oh yeah, they're going to be nodding along. Like, yes, that was me. Um, I'm betting that is going to be the case. So Tony, um, let's start right off with that property we were talking about. Sure. Because there's this really cool area that I went to hunt this year after my Montana hunt. And um, I had been out there just like recreationally with my family in the past and liked it and had started hunting more Western states and thought it was really cool. And you also had hunted in this general area in the past. We talked about that. So last year, I finally had the time to be able to go out there and try hunting it. This is North Dakota, some river bottom stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I mentioned, showed up thinking it was going to be a little of a cakewalk did not end up being that way. And so to Spencer's point, maybe it's not a failure because, you know, I still filled the tag earlier. I still had a great time. Like you mentioned, Tony, it is such a beautiful 
location that even though we totally struck out last year, I still want to go back this year and I want to try it again. Because even if the deer population isn't that great and if there aren't deer like you know you might want, which I think there are based on some of your experiences and other people's I talked to, um, even if that wasn't the case, it's still just like such a cool experience being there. Yep. I want to give it a shot. But what I want to do is, is kind of lay out what we did on that hunt, very like cliff note style. And then as much as you're willing to kind of break down what you think our mistakes might have been. Sure. Um, so the way this area laid out, and we'll keep it kind of high level, but there's this river on the bottom and there's some high stuff on either side, right? There's a kind of a river valley and then there's hills on the sides. And we came in thinking that these deer would be feeding in some kind of green grassy food source or something down the bottoms and that we could sit on the hills and glass and see where these deer came out of the thick shrubby or cedar or cottonwood cover or whatever we thought we'd be able to watch them come out and maybe cross the river maybe just head out to some of these fields and field and, and, and feed we would observe that a time or two and then we would be able to move right in with our hang and hunt setups get positioned between the bed and feed and, and ambush them pretty easily thought that'd be the case um from the get-go, my buddy Furter was out there for a few days before I was there, and he was telling me along the way, not seeing many deer at all. Just a couple does here and there. I saw one young buck, this and that. There was some pressure for, from some other hunters, hunting other species in the area that he was a little worried about. Um, and then, you know, when he was going out and hunting, it was like he'd see one deer night. Like, just was not the numbers we thought. I showed up five days later or whatever it was, spent one night up on a hill and one morning up on a hill glassing a huge swath of country. And again, saw very little. Saw a handful of does. One night at last night, I saw two decent-ish bucks down in the river. Um, but decided to pull the plug after that because we, we, we drove around that whole day looking to try and find different access, access points, looking at maps. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, we've got like, day and a half of hunting left. So we've got two options. We either just go and sit somewhere and, and see what we can do, but we have not seen anything that's very encouraging at all. Or we totally, you know, call an audible, drive to a completely different part of the state where I had some intel that I thought we could find some deer in a different kind of way. So I ended up pulling the plug on this, went to the total other part of the state, did find some deer, had some close calls. But looking back on it, you have experience in that same general area you went back to that same general area later in the year and ended up seeing some good deer had some quality opportunities and stuff um what what did we do wrong because it seemed like so bleak our situation was compared to like what you've seen so i think what you did wrong is you went out there looking for the destination food source and expecting to key in on the travel to and from it and you know if you can find an alfalfa field or something out there it's going to be covered in deer. It's going to be private, but you know you could have public land deer moving to it. If you don't find that, and I know some of this, we were looking at those maps. Like you, you are, you're right on top of some of the stuff I've hunted for ten years now, and I know from experience glassing out there that a lot of times you're watching that river or you're watching what you think is like the destination for them, and you just need to spin a 180 and start looking back toward where you think the mule deer might live, and you'll find those whitetails. And what you see when you find them is they're on a just a browsing pattern. They're not really just trucking off to some spot. That's why you don't see the major movement across the rivers. If you hunt a place out there where you have a field, those river crossings are money yeah. because it, that's where they're going. Yeah. But there's places they don't have that. And so you end up just watching, you know, you end up getting getting some elevation and getting on the spotting scope 
in seeing those whitetails in places they shouldn't be. They're in sage flats. And so you, you, if you, and I, I can say that it, it sounds like easy, but I've spent probably at least 25 or 30 days of my life out there in that spot glassing. You know, I used to go out there for four days at a time before the season to glass. And so I know this just from getting into the same situation, but the deer were there. You just, they just weren't probably, you guys just probably looking a little bit in the wrong way. And, you know, it's, it's hard to remember unless you walk through that stuff a lot out there, but it's a hell of a lot taller than it looks. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's like any kind True. of long range glassing. When you look at the cover, you're like, oh, you know. You, then you walk into it and you go, whoa, this is freaking head high and totally different. Same deal out there. And so a lot of times those deer, they're, they're way more visible later in the season when there's a lot less cover. And so in early season, you might not even see them come out from the cedars wherever they're bedding and they might make it into that, that brush along the river. They disappear. Right. They're gone. And until they come out to drink or they come out to cross, you don't see them. And so when I went back out there... Um, I mean, I, there, there were deer all over. I mean, it took me a while to kill one. I killed one, but it was, it was, a, the, the river crossing thing was done. I didn't have anything going on there. Everything I had was just browsing. Why do you think that was? That, the, that they weren't crossing the river like you've seen in the past? I don't know. The river wasn't high. It wasn't something no, like that, right? They were, I saw, I saw some deer cross it, but it was not the consistent. I mean, that, that's been my go-to thing out there. You get on a watch those crossings, you find where the bucks are going, you go down there, hang a stand, or you, you know, sit on the ground and kill one. I mean, it, it has been easy for me out there. It's not, it hasn't been lately. Yeah. And it's just been a matter of, you know, keying into what those deer are browsing on. And it's, it, there's something going on. But, you know, one thing I've seen versus, you know, the opening weekend, Labor Day weekend type of thing when you were out there versus middle October, you see the brows change. You see the like the the rabbit brush and stuff out there is different colors, and you watch them feed on different things. And so, I, you know, for you, I don't know what was happening there, other than they were just they had enough brows. They weren't they weren't crossing the rivers. So analyze my process. So so my process for this guy, like I want to kind of zoom out and make it a little more generic. So for someone who isn't hunting this specific place, maybe they can still learn something about how to not make the same mistakes I made hunting a place for the a, an out-of-state place for the first time. So my process was talk to a handful of people who have been there. I looked at the maps a whole lot, tried to find what I thought would be good pockets of cover where I thought they would be deer bedded. And then we made a spring trip there and shed hunted and scouted it. And in and hit a couple core places. There's a lot of other stuff we didn't get to walk, but I got to scout a couple patches at least while we were there. And then when we showed up, I just told you what I did when we showed up. Yep. So analyze that process. Was there any process mistakes or tweaks you would have made that aren't necessarily specific, just this little piece? But um, The only thing I would say is just, you know, you always have to be careful about falling in love with the idea of, you know, like you have this idea, this is what they're going to do. Yeah. And you, you push that dead program. And I'm to the point now with hunting and glassing, if if I give it an evening and a morning and it's not happening, I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. And that that's, you know, that like I almost have to stick to that. Otherwise, I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, oh, this is going to happen. Yeah. And when you're sitting there and if you can see a mile upriver and downriver and it's not happening there, you got to figure something else out. Yep. So sometimes out there, you know, you pick your glassing point, you're going on an X or whatever, and you'll watch, you don't see them. Sometimes it's just a matter of hiking up that ridge, getting on a different knob and just looking a little bit different. And I really, it's, it's really easy to forget about doing that in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it's so important out there. You know, you'll see them 
you'll see when the, it starts getting light out, they're already a lot closer to where they're going to bed a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's different than the evening, how that progresses. And it, it might not put you on a morning pattern, but it'll, it'll, it'll give you a better idea what they're going to do in the evening. And so much, at least for me on these out-of-state hunts, especially states where you can see a little bit, getting those visuals, if nothing else, just the confidence boost that yeah. you're in the right general area. I mean, that is huge. Yep. Just to know we're in the, in the ballpark. Yep. Then, all right, then we can wiggle around and figure things out. But I want to know I'm in the ballpark. It's really hard to get serious if you're still clueless, if you're even in the game. Yep. That helps a ton. Well, and that, that is such a good point. And, like, when I went back out there, I got on some deer. It took me, I don't know, probably three days. Had a perfect setup. They were coming in, three bucks. It was it was going to happen. Somebody drove down the other side of the river, blew everything out. So I had to reset. And I didn't have a lot to go on. So I just went back to my spotting scope and started over. And that's when you're in a hunt and you're on the road, it's really hard to go out like for an evening knowing you're not really going to hunt. You know, mm -hmm. you carry a bow in case you see one to crawl after or yeah. something. But it's just a exercise in futility mostly. But to reset and go, okay, that blew up what's next? How do I figure this out? And it, it takes a little time, you know, sometimes, but if you're, you know, if you're open to that, like if you're open to like, okay, either I had it wrong, it got blown up on me, something like that. This, this thing's changed and now I need a reset. You got to reset. You got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, definitely in my mind. It was looking back. It was, I had these assumptions going in and we didn't adjust accordingly. Yeah. Now I sort of made a good decision in that, the, the mistake, one of the mistakes was not trying plan B in the same area and like getting in there and seeing stuff up close for changing our vantage point. We didn't do a good job of that. So that was one of the mistakes. What I think was good though, was I realized this isn't working. What we're doing isn't working. Let's hit reset. I just made a really hard reset by driving an yeah. hour and a half away. Now by doing that, it put us in a brand new area where we found deer really quick and came really close to shooting some. Yeah. Um, so it worked out kind of, but in a very different fashion. Um, but I do know now that maybe I could have made it happen still there. And I, I sure as heck are going to try again. <laughs> well, dude, that happens. I mean, I did the same thing in Oklahoma last year where I put in a pile of research into this spot. Drove down there, got my ass kicked for three days. Me and my buddy were like, let's just, let's just call an audible, go somewhere completely different. Like, and, you know, maybe, like you said, like maybe you could have stayed and figured something out. But I just... Sometimes if you get to the point where you lose that much confidence in a spot, it's a good idea to see fresh ground. Yeah. I was just going to say the confidence thing. Sometimes it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy to yep. a degree. If you get so down in your head or if you're getting beaten up so much, you could change nothing else but just make me feel like there's going to be a better chance because I'm in a new place and all of a sudden things start working out. So. And it's still <clears throat> it's not a complete failure because now you've seen this in person and going into yeah. 2019, you have a better idea of what to look for when you get there. Yeah. This video series that we did earlier today, um, within that, we took a property that one of the three of us was familiar with, and then we had the other two digitally scout it. And it was really eye-opening. You already know this, but, like, digitally scouting can only get you so far. And then the person who'd been there on the ground and hunted these places had much more awareness of, of what it actually looks like in person and why maybe your assumption on this was wrong. Yeah. And so it wasn't a failure that you didn't kill one because now you go into 2019 and, and uh, 
you'd know so much more than you did before. I'll tell you what, though, if I don't kill one in 2019, that is a failure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be really pissed. <laughs> and I'm planning on sinking a bunch of time into it this time. Like so, how much time? Uh, well, last year I tried to do, to do a 10-day trip between Montana and North Dakota. I think it were something like that. And I think I gave it like three and a half days. So this year I'm going to budget seven to 10 days just for North Dakota. So think I can do it? I like it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think so. Seven to 10 days. Yeah. And uh, depending what your standards are, I think you can certainly do it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'll probably, I mean, it'll be like a three-year-old is like my floor. Like I'd like to kill a three-year-old. Um, but if I get out there in night number one and I'm like seeing nice bucks, like nice older bucks, then I'll jump my standards up. If I know I could shoot like a nice four-year-old or something like that, I'd have a hard time jumping back down to like a spindly three-year-old if I knew there was a big daddy out there. There are. Yeah. <laughs> He's out there. Well, I have these freaking sheds that tell me there's a swamp, yeah. well, not a swamp monster, but a, but a big boy. <laughs> so... I don't know. I'm excited to get back. That one of the things I love about hunting so much and about like taking it to the degree that we take is these challenges like this, where you get thrown into a place. Like why I love hunting new properties so much Mm -hmm. is I love the the figuring out process. I I like that figuring out process more than the actual pull the trigger. So this is actually the really fun part of it is struggling. And you learn a little bit here and learn a little bit there. And this year, if I get on some deer, like that is going to be cool, even if I don't kill one. So, so that, uh, that is something that I know we can all relate to a little bit. Do any of you guys have any other specific hunts like that that you would say is like a failure or that you can point to some big mistake you made as far as like tactics or um, decisions on that front? Anything on that line? Uh, decision wise, I think it was like five years ago. It must've been six years ago, like 2013. Um, I, I had an okay year hunting up to that point, but it was like November 4th and a buck perfectly read the script and came in and I shot him at 10 yards and, uh, was so sure I double lunged him. Like I saw the arrow. He, uh, ran off. The blood looked great. It was, you know, the bubbly pink blood. I was ignorant and sent out text messages like BBD and got one and, oh, man, never again until I'm, like, holding <laughs> those antlers in my hand. Um, but I, I was super confident that I just crushed this buck. And I waited, uh, you know, probably 45 minutes, an hour, and, and I picked up the blood trail and followed it forever and was down to the point where it was just drops. And I ended up one-lunging that deer. I'm sure he died a mile later, miles later, but I just never found him. And it bugged me endlessly for the rest of the year. It got me really down. Um, and I don't know that, like, um, waiting longer for the recovery would have been the answer. Like, that would have resulted in me having, you know, this deer now on my wall or something. It was just the poor shot selection of a slightly quartering two deer that I, I don't think I'll ever take that shot again. Or um, I'll just bring that shot more forward because it sucked what happened. That, well, it really, really sucked. Walk us through the actual encounter. Like, how did it work out? This deer coming in, what were you doing? What led to you being forced into that shot? Like, were you forced into that shot? Or was it the first shot available and you were like, I got to get it? Or what happened leading up to that point? Uh, for most of the encounter, he was coming in. Describe like, the buck, too. Head I want to envision this. 
probably like 145 inch five by five. It, it would have been uh, my best archery whitetail at the time. Nice. I'd have been stoked to have him. And he was coming in pretty much head on. And I had to, this encounter lasted probably three or four minutes of just watching him come in because it was on a field edge. And then uh, he ended up weaving through some trees and all of a sudden he was at 10 yards and that was the first shot I had. And I took the shot and that 10 yard shot was like in front of me, whereas had I let him come a little bit further too, he would have then been you know, parallel with me. I could have had a more broadside shot ideally. So that, that was another mistake I made. Um, but just that quartering two shots and, and the huge like up and down of I double long this thing, it's gonna be dead 100 yards away. And then that not happening really sucked. Uh, the shot placement. Mm-hmm. It was quartering to you dramatically, just a little bit, you said? What was it? <sighs> just a little bit. It, it was such a rush, too, and I, and I was, uh, I don't know about cocky about it, but I was confident that I killed this deer, and it was only 10 yards. 10 yards should be a dead deer <laughs> yeah. for anybody. And so I, I think there was like a lapse in my uh, attention to detail as well, as far as where I might have hit this thing. But I felt like the the blood and the arrow confirmed that I double lung this deer. Do you remember at the shot, I know that I've had a tendency um, on like these gimme shots that, and this is a bigger issue that I will speak to and address, but on the gimme shots, especially like as soon as the pin hits the bull, bam, I'm firing. Like I, like I don't, take the time on those gimme shots because it just seems so easy and i know like you should be picking a spot sinking your eye like right in and then you know pulling back on it but did you feel like it was it was so easy you couldn't mess up so you just did it and maybe it was an issue like that yeah um there was also i I didn't bother stopping the deer because he was 10 yards and so i think there was there's a lesson to be learned there as well uh it just seemed like too easy of a shot i was coming off the year before, I shot a buck at 35 yards. He died within 50 yards. I, I double-lunged him. Um, so I, I was confident that a 10-yard shot should be a dead deer, and it should have been. I just messed up. Where do you guys stand on the stop-don't-stop stop debate? Where do, you, do you typically stop deer, Spencer? Typically stop them, yeah. And is there any situation where you wouldn't mm-hmm. other than that one? Maybe just how aware of me it is or how on edge it is if it thinks there's something up or um one time i stopped a deer that i grunted at twice and and when he came in and i ended up stopping him before i shot he knew then that something was up because he he came into an area where like son of a bitch i should be able to see this buck that just grunted at me i made the mistake of uh like Nah, doing that at him and stopping him and then it, it was like he knew it was up I shot him and killed him he, he didn't go very far but in that case he was on edge um, there was too much information available to him to know that there was not that buck there and so that was a case where I stopped him I shouldn't have but in most cases I prefer to stop it because yeah, the argument against it is kind of you, you were um, sort of speaking to it which is if you stop them verbally with a sound you put them on edge mm-hmm. and you give them a better chance of a buck like jumping the string so yeah dropping down arrow goes over his back that kind of thing tony yeah. man i'm it's all situational you know if they're if they're cruising through and it's it's going real fast you know I, i'm gonna try to stop them you know um if i think they're gonna stop naturally or if they're just walking and they're close i've 
a lot of times I don't. I just dump them. Yeah. You know, and it, it's just, it's like one of those things you just read in the moment, you know. And once in a while you get one of those deer that you murp at to try to get him to stop and he turns around and <laughs> runs out of your life and you're yeah. like, oh man, I really wish that wouldn't happen. So it just, it just depends. Yeah. And I do think it does come with experience a little bit too. Yeah. Like knowing when you can get away with it, when you can't. Um, like you said, I'm, I, you know, definitely if I feel like there's a chance for that they'll stop themselves enough time, I would rather them do it naturally for sure. Yep. But sometimes you don't have that scenario. But I've, I've heard of some people, especially new hunters, where like if you watch hunting TV at all, it seems like every single time someone shoots a deer, they, they, got, they first go, rah. Yeah. And so you got new hunters who have like a deer standing stock still in front of them or like really <laughs> slowly work or like they could stop at any point and then people go Mrah, and then shoot them. Um, uh, you don't need to do that. It's like a taunt or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. Or, you know, I think some people on TV do it because like they want a pretty shot, like the well, picture. Yeah. Like they I mean, want to head up. Head Sometimes up. when you, you know, you hear it on the TV show, it's not the hunter, it's the cameraman yeah. doing it. Yeah, you know, so they they have it in frame. Yeah, so. so I think that you as a hunter need to remember that you that you don't need the pretty video shot. Yeah, yeah, don't you, do that. You don't have to merp them. Don't merp them. <laughs> yeah. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart, or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. I'm sure you guys have unrecovered deer, but have you ever single-lunged a deer before? I... So the only unrecovered deer I had was not a single lung. The buck I killed in Montana, I nicked one lung and liver. But I don't have a single lung buck that I, that I can think of or any deer of any kind that I didn't recover. Mm-hmm. 
Tony? Oh, I have, yeah. I mean, you, you know, the thing about saying that is if you don't recover them, how do you really know? Yeah. Right. You know? But I, sh- I shot one one time in the in the Twin Cities. I got on this vegetable farm by my house, and these deer were just like on this little carrot field. It was like incredible. And as soon as I got permission and I saw what was going on, I was this like, is like a guy's garden behind the house. No, no, no. It's an organic vegetable farm. Oh, okay. So it's okay. a farm, but they have like they had a whole field of carrots. I've never hunted carrots before. Right. And I went out. <laughs> I got permission. My buddy got us permission, and I I went out and glassed it. It was the season was already in. And I'm sitting there just glassing, and I just watch all of these, like, 12 bucks come running in. And Jeez. it's like they're plucking these carrots out of this loose dirt, you know, and they're they're holding them up like Bugs Bunny, and they chomp a few, let it go. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like a dream. It's, it's like wow. two minutes from my front door. And so I went in there. There was no good place to hang a stand, so I just went and built a little ground vine under the cedar tree and had all these deer pour in. I had, I'll never forget, I had three turkeys right behind me all these deer in the field and a, and a ambulance went by and all the turkeys were gobbling at the siren the whole time. And they were like right over my shoulder and these bucks started coming in and the first good one, which was a really nice deer, got in there and a doe busted me as I drew and kind of put the whole thing on edge. And I, I shot him just square in the shoulder from the ground. But I was like, well, you know, it hit hard and he went running off. I had a lighted knock and my, not, my arrow went spiraling up in the air. I'll never forget it. And I look for that deer. That was one of those ones. It's one of the reasons I don't hunt those places anymore because you're like 100 yards from people's backyards. And it's, you know, that that farm and the neighboring farm where we got permission to look for him are pretty big. But it was just a weird, I, I don't like being in that situation. But that's one deer where I'm like, I'm pretty positive. I took out one lung just the way watching it hit and watching how it transpired. And I never... Never got him, never saw him again. I don't know if he, I don't, I, I'd like to think he survived, but who knows? You know, he probably didn't. Can you pinpoint the mistake or what? what? Yeah, I shot him in the shoulder. That was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I should have shot him behind the shoulder. Well, no, I mean, my mistake was, in all honesty, was I rushed it. Because yeah. what happened is I had all these deer and all this stuff going on. And that doe busted me, and I just, instead of just concentrating on the shot, I concentrated on now this whole situation is going to evaporate. She's going to blow this up. And in in my career, in my hunting career, so many of the screw-ups I've made shooting, you know, missing or hitting them poorly have been just because I didn't let it breathe. I just didn't let, I didn't take my time. And you think about it, you know, it's like, Literally, the difference between taking your time and not taking your time is three seconds yeah. or five seconds. But it's like just that freaking rush it, man. You got to get this. You got to make it happen. And I, I try so hard in my life now to not fall into that. And sometimes I do just from, you know, you get in the moment. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's like young hunters, you see that so much. And that's like when I'm listening to Spencer talk about this buck that he lost and saying, you know, it's 10 yards. How did I screw it up? I, you know, it might have been you know, slightly quartering, whatever. I always think about that because we always think we know exactly what happened. Right. But if we don't find them, we don't know. And you just, you know, if you if you take newbies out a lot, and it still happens to us, but if you take people out, you know, ask any guide out there, like what happens? Oh, I double lunged it. I double lunged it. I double lunged it. They go out and it's gut shot. It's hitting the brisket. It's hit all, you know, yeah. like we we just fill in the blanks mentally, man. And it's a lot of times I don't, I don't think we get it right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's so easy to 
to to rush things, but then like you said, to also put pressure to make it happen right now. Yep. Because we, you know, especially if you're you're getting into it pretty serious, but you're still early in that process. So you went out all spring and scouted. You went shed hunting. You hunted. You hiked miles and miles and miles and miles. Picked up sheds and scouted and found bedding areas. You went out there in the summer and you hung tree stands and you hung trail cameras and you sat out there in the evening and scouted bean fields and you're ran a couple miles every day to make sure you were good enough, fit enough to be able to hike in a couple miles on the public land. You did all this stuff. You put in days and 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 days of work. And it all comes down to the next 10 seconds of my life. I will either cash in on that investment of time and energy in my life or I will not. Talk about a lot of pressure on a couple seconds. It's really easy to say, I got to get now. Yeah. I mean, I've fallen into that for sure. Early on, it was like, there's a little window. I can maybe slip the shot in there. If I don't take this shot, I'm never going to get the shot again. And I was at that point, I was like, I got to take the shot. Yeah. I think a lot of times you learn a hard lesson if you do that, whether it be with a miss, whether it be with wounding a deer and you realize how much worse the scenario is. Yeah. I would much, much, much rather not get a shot at all than rush one and wound a deer and deal with what that means. Yeah. But that's sometimes something that has to be experienced before you actually start to be able to put it into play. Dude, I think it I think you have to go through it. And I think it's I think it's just there's a lot going on, but part of it's just pure ego. Like we all go through we want to possess that big buck. Like you believe me, you want to show that picture off. Sure. And I think you go through the stage where like you're gonna screw up a lot. You're gonna fail a ton. And then you kind of just you get to the point where you learn like that deer it's awesome. It doesn't mean that much to your life. Like it, it, it re, like you said earlier, it really doesn't mean that much to anybody else. And you kind of go, it's still, it's still an amazing thing and it's a driver, but you understand like, this isn't the end all. Yeah. Like this is, you know, and, and if you don't get this one, like, you know, it might take you another year, but if, if you stick at this long enough and you work at it enough, you're going to get another chance. Yeah. You know? And the opposite is, or the other side of the coin is the opposite in that if you force a shot for your ego and you wound an animal or you hit it and it dies two weeks later, we're talking about the very serious nature of life. Yeah. Like you are screwing with the life of an animal that could suffer, that could have a really horrible, horrible end to its existence. And that's something I don't think that you want to be, you, you don't want to be trifling with just to stroke your ego. It's bad juju, man. It's bad, bad all the way around. Yeah. And it's not even like uh, always ego related just not having that much experience with a live animal yeah oh in front of you just not knowing how that encounter is going to unfold and i think about my like first years of archery turkey hunting a lot and all the times i messed (laughs) up not knowing when to draw on a turkey and just screwing up a a perfect encounter that had i let it go you know 10 more seconds i would have had a turkey with his fan up with his back to me and a perfect shot but it just takes some actual encounters. It's, it's so thing that's such so much more easier said than done. You yeah. just need to experience it and uh, potentially have those screw ups to to figure out what you need to do. Yeah, this this exact scenario, and I don't know, I should have thought about this when we first started talking about this. One of my biggest screw ups of all time, biggest failures, and I've talked about it extensively in past years. But now we're, this podcast has been around so long, there might be a lot of people that hadn't heard that way back in 2013, I think it was. But um, I did this very exact same thing with the biggest buck I would have had a shot at 
in my life at that point. It's a great big buck. I called him Jawbreaker, talked about him a lot. And year one, had some cool encounters, didn't get him. Year two, it was all about trying to kill this deer, lots of excitement and build up around it. Thought I found his bed, thought I knew where he was coming and going from. This whole thing worked out really cool where like one morning I'm sitting in Michigan in my office and typing away. And then I, I had this feeling like, I got just like, I think I need to be in Ohio today. And I looked at the weather and I saw a front was coming in. I'm like, there's a front coming. It's October 15th or something. I know where he's bedded. I've been waiting for this one wind direction. I was like, if I had a south, southwest wind and a cold front hit, even if it's a mid-October, I bet you I can kill him. And like, it was like one of those weird gut things where like, usually you don't really know, you don't, usually you don't really have such a clear calling to like, this is something stupid. It was, it was a weird thing that I don't know if I can even speak to another example like this, but I was like, I got to go. I ran upstairs to my wife's office and said, hey, honey, I got to go. I'm driving five hours down to Ohio. I think I can kill job record tonight. And so barreled down all the way. It was raining, cold, set up in this perfect one setup where I was going to kill Jawbreaker, And he didn't show up. Didn't see him. Woke up the next morning, started driving back to Michigan. I get stuck in traffic on the highway on the way back to Michigan. I'm sitting in the car, beating myself up about it, thinking, thinking, thinking. You drove all the way down here for one night's hunt. You How long you drive? Uh, five, five hours. Have I said it that many times that you're teasing me about it? <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I genuinely miss that. Uh, so it was a five-hour drive. Yeah, he literally just said that, Spencer. <laughs> um, I'm stuck in traffic on the highway, and I convinced myself again to turn around. Yeah, do it. Got to try it one more time. Turn around, drive back down, get set up. This time he shows up. He comes walking out from this ditch crosses right underneath me like 20 some yards away or something kind of a situation where it was a gimme shot except for the rushing part came that I had seen him step out of this ditch and there was about a 10 more than that 20 some yard wide little opening that he was walking across and I did two things I number one to get into the position to get a shot that I thought I needed I grabbed my bow and had to do a full 360 degree spin to be able to get away, you know, around this and shoot around the backside of the tree. And then number two, I believed I needed to film it. So I took the extra three seconds to turn on the camera, spin the camera around and get it on this deer. All the while I'm doing those two things, the deer is walking across the clearing. By the time I get those things, we have dogs in the office, so there's a little barking <laughs> going on. By the time I got those things done, he was at the very end of the clearing and there was some bushy trees that he was just starting to walk behind. And I don't, I definitely didn't have like the thought, like I didn't have a conversation with myself in the moment, but for no doubt about it in my head, I was like, it's now or never. You got to shoot, shoot. Like this is your last possible chance. All this, all the two years of time. And then this whole like two day saga of back and forth, back and forth, thinking this was going to happen. Then didn't happen. Things going to happen. Like there was so much put in this moment that I absolutely rushed that shot. I fiddled with too much stuff in the first place, yeah. and then I rushed it when I finally did get the shot. And I gut shot him, and that buck, I didn't recover him until the next February. I don't know what happened. He might have died. I searched for him for two days. Maybe he died, and I just didn't find him within that time period. Maybe he didn't die for a week. Maybe he didn't die for two. I don't know. But whatever it was, it was not good. Um, and so that has just stuck with me forever to the point now that I – so after that happened – I was like, okay, I rushed that shot, screwed it up. I got to practice more or whatever. So I thought I'd practice more, practice more, get better. And then I had another time where I found myself rushing the shot again. And then I would tell myself, oh, but you're fine on the target behind the house. You're fine. It's not that bad. You still kill these deer. You're doing fine. 
it, it's not a big deal. And then a couple more years, one of that, where I'm like trying to convince myself there's not an issue. Finally, I realized, you know what? It, it's just not worth screwing around with something like this. Like, I, so as, as many people know now, I've been like tearing down my whole archery process and rebuilding to try to find a new way to better control those final moments, to be in control of the shot, to have an unanticipated release. So I'm not punching the trigger or rushing it, trying to, trying to find all these different things. So th- there's nothing I'm working at harder now than figuring out those last moments. Cause it's not, it's so easy to screw up and it's not worth it in any way. Like there's, there's nothing I don't think that probably d- demands more of our attention than being able to execute in those final moments. But so many people, it's the last thing they think about. There's a lot of people that grab their bow two weeks before the season, shoot it a couple times. I hit the bulls. I'm good to go. And then off they go. I just do not think that is responsible. With Jawbreaker, do you think there was also um, like a failure when it came to the post-recovery as far as you may have pushed him too soon or anything like that? So kind of like you, I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think. We, we waited overnight. So I shot him in the evening right towards last light, came back the next day at like, I don't know, 8 a.m. or something like that. So I gave him a lot of time. And then... I had two different dogs too. So first we went and followed blood till the blood ran out. After the blood ran out, we started doing circles, nothing. A buddy of mine came who had a, who had a dog. He was going to come help anyways. He also happened to have a pretty well-trained dog. He helped search for a day, nothing. And then an actual listener, I'd been sharing everything on Facebook at the time. Someone who was following along said, hey, I'm not too far away. I do this professionally, whatever. I could bring my dog the next day. So I spent two full days looking with dogs um, and, and I didn't rush it. So I think we, we did everything we possibly could to try to find that deer. Now, the weird thing though is come back two months later or three months, whatever it was when I was back there to go shed hunting, like the first day of February, first week of February, I don't know. We show up and that buck is right in a spot that we walked by. Like, I can't say we walked within sight of it, but we walked like, couldn't have been more than 20 yards away. He was down like mm. a, a ditch and there's like a little tiny, it was like the head of a ditch at the bottom. No, so that's the opposite of the head. Whatever, that's the bottom of a ditch, sort of. And there was a spot, kind of like a natural bedding spot, probably, that a buck, he, there he was right there. So we could have, he might have been there the whole time, and somehow we just missed it. But with those dogs, you no think way. he smelt it. I mean, the odds of that, the odds of two dogs missing it, so slim. Yeah. So I wonder... I, I, you know, this is just speculation on my part, but like I think about something like that and I go, that was probably not just a direct gut punch situation. It was probably one of those deals where it maybe looked like that, but it was maybe real low or real high. Or, it was on the lower side. It was. So yeah. it was more like intestine. Well, I was going to say, because I, I hit one, I hit a big one on public land two years ago on, in South Dakota that hit low. I shot at him from a ground blind. And my limb hit the ground blind, the whole world exploded. And I thought I missed him, went out there, found blood, and ended it, long story short, ended up finding him eight hours later, shooting him again. And I'd hit him like that, where it was like, <sighs> caught some guts, but not just a center punch yep. thing. And so I, I always wonder about that buck. If we hadn't caught up to him and got really lucky to find him and get another arrow in him, I don't think a 24-hour wait would have been enough for that deer. Like when we... What he was capable of doing, what he was thinking about and stuff, he had his faculties about him, you know, eight hours later. And so that buck that you shot like that, you know, if you just, if you nick it enough to kill him over time, but it could be, you know, because with, with two good dogs, that deer's, if he's gut shot and dead, you find him. Yeah, I think you would, yeah. So he's, 
you know, that it, it almost makes it way worse because how long was he out there? Yeah, who knows? Suffering. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, that will go down. Hopefully that will go down as my, my, the worst, like the lowest point of my journey as a hunter. Hopefully it never gets worse than that because I have for a long time felt pretty darn bad about that and have tried to learn from it and still working to address issues of that and try and get better every year. But that one sticks with you. Yeah. You, you've had some challenges with buck fever and stuff like that, though, too, right, Tony? Oh, brother, I uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody in the world who's ever had it worse. <laughs> right? I mean, you guys are sitting here talking about, we were, you know, before this, like, talking about, oh, I've missed three deer. I'm like, I missed three deer in a day. Like, <laughs> I, I'm like, I, I, I spent a, uh, quite a bit of my life, I wanted it so bad, you know? I just... Growing up, I just wanted to be a successful bow hunter so bad. And the first couple of years I hunted, I couldn't hardly buy a deer sighting. So when I started finally getting like a few deer around me, it was like such a big deal that I had no chance of holding it together. And I'd go through these periods where for like for a while I might make like a couple good shots in a row and then I'd flame out for like six shots, you know. And I just, I had to look at it. It finally came to a head with me in, in Minnesota probably in, I don't know, 2000. I don't know, five or something, I guess. Maybe, well, maybe a little earlier than that, but sitting on a tree stand on like Halloween, you know, just, just the night and sitting in a place where they cruise. And I had, this, this is going to make me sound dumb and I, I'm not, the, I am. So <laughs> we, we had gone to a, we had gone to a concert at Fine Line Music Cafe in Minneapolis. I had the whole week off to hunt. And like the Sunday night, we went to a concert or Saturday night or whatever. And I was freaking deaf. What was like, the concert? Blue October. We're getting all these other details. So yeah. Think. So <laughs> it was a Blue October concert and there was like 25 people there and it was so freaking loud. It was, it was a blast. But I remember we, my wife and I, had, we had, at the time she was not my wife yet, but we had a hotel room and I remember laying in the room at night, like thinking, okay, now I'm driving to Southern Minnesota tomorrow. I can't hear anything like nothing <laughs> and so i go down there to hunt hunt for a couple days and i'm sitting on stand and it was like the it was they i've gone to one concert i love music i've gone to one concert since that entire time because that scared me so wow. bad because i would sit there i'll never forget i was sitting there in that stand and i'd hear i'd i'd see the trees like the wind blowing through the trees and i couldn't hear it and it was so it like freaked That's me freaky. out and i looked down and this forky came walking by couldn't hear him in the leaves and he bedded down and I'm like, I can't hear that deer like eight yards away. Wow. So anyway, this is not what, uh, where I'm going with <laughs> that. That's not the failure. <laughs> that was a failure. That was dumb. <laughs> Different kind of dumb. Um, and so, you know, and if you want to talk about dumb, um, I've like tried to preserve my hearing so much since then because it really wigged me out. I had a buddy shoot at a grouse like three years ago right by my ear and like doubled the ringing in my left ear. Made, I, I, yes. I lay at night, I, I'm still pissed at him about this. <laughs> so anyway, so total, total sidebar. But that night I'm sitting there and it's just the night. It's beautiful. And I, but I can't hear and I look up and here's this buck walking by. And he's got, you know, he's got, just a wall of tines, like just that typical 12 point type deer. And he's like one fifties, you know, and to me at that time, that was like an unreal deer, like to see, to see it, let alone. And I, I remember just watching my arrow sail over his back, like never aimed, not just drew and, you know, let yeah. go and spray and pray. And I'm like, holy shit, I screwed it up so bad. And so he just kind of trotted a little ways. And then I'm in panic mode, like, you know, cause he's like, 50 yards away now, like, oh, I know something's going on. He stops mm -hmm. at a scrape. And I got another arrow on, and I'm like, 
I'm like every deer sound you can make. Snortwees, bleats, <laughs> fawns, rattles, whatever, party sounds. I don't care. I'm doing I'm like, please come back into like range, please. Yeah. And as I'm calling to this buck, I just like look over my shoulder and here comes this like 125 inch eight pointer right by me. So I called in this deer and I just spun around and I shot. And that buck was so close when I missed him. <laughs> that arrow stuck in the ground and he dropped to turn and he snapped my arrow and ran off. <laughs> and I was like, it's, you want to talk about like a, a formative moment in your life? Like I was sitting there and I was like, how do I just destroy everything? Like I, I immediately just turned into the Joker. I'm like, I just want to watch the world burn. I freaking hate everything. And it was like, it hit me so hard because it was two opportunities that, you know, they just don't come around. And it was like a 10 minute, it was like in 10 minutes I, I did that. And I'm not, and that wasn't like the first deer I'd missed, you know, like, and I, I was like, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to continue to bow hunt if I don't have confidence, like that I can do this. And yeah. I, I had to, I had to take apart the whole thing and start over too, man. It was, I felt like, I don't know, have you guys ever hunted with traditional gear? You ever hunted with a recurve or a longbow? So I, I did a little experiment, you know, when I was in college, I'm like, I'm going to go, I'm going to try to kill one with a recurve, you know, ton of practice. I ended up, I missed a few deer. I killed a decent buck, which was freaking awesome. Killed a doe. And I was like, you know, I think maybe this is, maybe I can do this. You know, the next year I just never, I shot a lot. I just never got to the point where I was like, I totally feel okay carrying this in the woods. I, I started the season with it, but I knew, like, I had this guilt. Like, you're not you're not there, man. Like, you shouldn't be out here with this. And so I I stopped. I went, you know, went back to a compound. But I, I realized I was, like, feeling that way, even though I knew, like you said, I could sit there at the target and hit it. No problem. But when I went out of the woods, I'm like, I don't, I'm like, I'm scared to see that deer coming in because I'm going to screw this up. And that's like, if you're there, if you're at that place, you're in a bad spot, man. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. And I, I'm trying to think here. I mean, the same thing you could, if we want to stick to this topic, I have had a somewhat similar issue, different, but similar with gun hunting in that I shoot my bow a ton. I shoot my guns almost never. Yep. Like if I'll shoot a couple times, you know, just for fun with friends. But then I basically my in my past with firearm, I don't do very much firearm hunting. So it's usually like you go out there the day before or the week before and shoot it once, shoot it twice, whatever. <laughs> make sure, yeah, hit the bullseye or hit close. And all right, it's, it's still on from last year. And then you go at it. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden you wonder why you miss something or things don't go well. So, I mean, for example, I... It was 2000, it was the year before that Jawbreaker shot. And now I was, I was hunting Jawbreaker this year, but there was also this other buck I was hunting that was a year younger, a couple of years younger. Um, and fast forward through, we saw him a few times during bow season. It's December now. And another one of those situations, a big snowstorm, cold front coming through. I drove down for the front, hit it. It was like blizzard-like conditions. I had shot a muzzleloader. I had shot my muzzleloader once, you know, the week before just to make sure it's good. I get out there and now I find myself in a situation where I'm trying to climb up into the tree stand. It was so much ice on the steps. I couldn't get into the tree stand. So I go to another stand, same thing. Can't get into any of my tree stands. So I just walk and find a tree, stand next to a tree on the edge of this field, blizzard-like conditions, a doe and this buck ends up walking out. 
I've not spent much time at all trying to range deer at long ranges with the, without a rangefinder. I was trying to range this deer. It was so much snow and wet and crap. I couldn't get a range on him. He's out there. Obviously, uh, believed he was within range. <laughs> Looked like he was close enough, but I'm not. You know, I don't have a good rest. I don't know exactly his range. It's snowing. It's blizzarding. I've shot the muzzleloader a couple times that year. Leaned up against the tree. Pow! The buck looks up, looks around, gets back down to feeding. It's like, oh my god, I missed him. Freaking out. This has been the same kind of thing. Like the whole year been going by. I had all these different close calls. Nothing was coming together. Was, this was early. This was in that still. I'm really stressed out about stuff phase. Uh-huh. So I felt this pressure. I had to kill a good buck. I reload, takes all his time, jam all the powder and the sabot, everything down there, get back up. He's still staying there, lean the gun against the against the tree. Pow. The buck looks up, takes a couple of runs, t- bounds off, stops, looks at me again. I think, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. Start reloading. And then he finally goes off. But as he's going off, he's kind of slowly walking away. I'm halfway through loading my third shell. I feel something like dripping into my eyes. <laughs> Wipe my hands. I scope myself. So I got <laughs> blood coming down my face. I just missed the best buck I had a chance at all your toys. And it's because <laughs> I never practiced with my gun ever. Yep. I never practiced in shots leaning against a tree. I never prepared for adverse conditions with the gun. I've never practiced shooting without ranging it, so I didn't know how far. I didn't even know what the max range was for the muzzleloader. I, you know, I was like, ah, it's over hundred yards, but probably under two hundred. I'll hit him, but you know, I shouldn't have been going out there like that. I shouldn't have known that. All right, if it's going to be at one hundred twenty-five yards, you can make that shot on the bull. But if he's one hundred fifty, you better aim an inch high. If he's at one hundred seventy, you're at the extent of your range or whatever it might be. Like now, I'm getting to the point where I realize you can't skimp on things on the firearm side too. And I I had grown up in a world where we hunted with firearms for a few days a year up north and the longest shot you would ever have is 50 yards. And it was in that situation, at least in our family culture, you shot the night before, if it was still on, you go. And we we saw like one deer every 10 years. So you weren't really going to get a shot anyways. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's a different scenario. And I feel like it just comes down to so many failures in the hunting woods come down to those final moments. Mm-hmm. But how much of our time throughout the year is spent preparing for that? For a lot of us, there's a lot of time scouting, a lot of time hanging stands, a lot of time checking trail cameras, showing your buddy pictures, a lot of time doing all that stuff. It's easy to sometimes skimp on the other pieces. It is. I mean, I think, I, I you know, Spencer's probably better to talk about this. You're probably probably the most accomplished gun hunter in this room, I would say, because <laughs> I'm terrible at it. And I'm, you know, listening to you talk about your experiences, Mark, like I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like I can't, if I have deer within bow range when I'm gun hunting, they're toast. It's awesome. But if I'm hunting like normal rifle ranges or even like an easy rifle shot, it's like not a foregone conclusion. And for me, I found like I can miss a deer with a rifle pretty easy if it's just standing there, but I'm pretty good at them when they're running. Like, if, <laughs> like really? I don't. I, I have a theory about this. I don't. And I, this is like only a few in my entire life. But and it actually, the first, the only time I've ever big game hunted out west with a rifle was with for antelope one time when I was like 24. I missed the antelope standing there broadside, 
and smoked him running. And, you know, antelope are pretty quick. I'm like, That's, that had to be a fluke, right? But I've had that happen to me like three times with deer, and I've only killed a few with a rifle. And it's the same thing. Like, I think I just go on autopilot. I mean, I've, I hunt with shotguns a lot on flying birds, and I think I, I just, like, take over a little bit there and go, okay, this is, this is like, it, it's, like, totally unintentional. I don't think I'm, I, don't, I honestly don't think I'm good at it. I think it just lets me, like, takes my head out of that little part of it, and I'm better at it than when I actually get to sit there and think about it. But it's all, like, a familiarity yeah. comfort thing, you know? Like, if you're not, and like you said about the bow thing, if you only take your bow out, for two weeks before the season starts, you're going to feel like I feel with a rifle. Like, yeah. I probably shouldn't even be there, you yeah. know? It's 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 a rough thing. I mean, like, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, you are. The best thing for me has been hanging out with these meat eater guys more often. They gun hunt so much that I've been invited on rifle hunts now, and there's a lot of peer pressure to make sure I'm not the worst shot there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very proud that on our last hunt, we did a koozie hunt this last year, everybody missed except for me. Nice, nice. Yeah, so and I, I, you know that's that stout company I was with. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I was the only one with one shot kill. So I'm learning. I'm getting better at it. Yep. Um, but it, it takes work. It takes experience. Like yep. I had to shoot a lot this year, or this was last year. Like the last two years, I've shot more than I ever have, and uh, and that's not going to be a, a blip on the radar. I'm going to try to make that the, the norm. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often as the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Yeah, I feel really confident with my rifle. I've done a lot of rifle hunting. That was I started doing that before 
I was bow hunting and I had like a stretch where it was like seven straight deer that were one shot, one kill with my rifle. And I like felt unstoppable, basically. Like if there's something within 250 yards, it's dead. What does Spencer do when he feels unstoppable? Like, well, do you start- I'll, 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 I'll tell you what he does. <laughs> so like I felt really, really competent as a marksman with my rifle. But I, like, quickly realized that I was much too dependent on my bipod. Like, almost all the shots I was taking was sitting with off of a bipod or prone off of a bipod, which in that scenario, it is so easy to hit your target. But one year I was hunting from the ground, and I had a big white tail, like 150-inch buck, coming through some CRP that was <clears throat> ground level with me. And I tried to get a shot off my bipod, but I was just too low. I couldn't get my scope high enough to even like get this thing in my scope. So then I had to shoot standing up, freehanding it, and I and I stand up and get ready to shoot. And I was so wobbly. There wasn't <laughs> there wasn't buck fever or anything like that. Like I just had to execute, you know, a hundred and fifty yard shot standing up and I could not do it. And Is that do you feel like that should be an easy shot? I, I think so. Standing up freehand, hundred and fifty yards? <sighs> I, I I don't know. I just I just count think, me out. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not that, but I wasn't even close. Like I didn't even feel competent enough to, yeah. to consider pulling the trigger because I wasn't close. And I realized I was way way too dependent on my bipod. So and you didn't shoot? I didn't shoot. Good not, for you. Uh, yeah, but if you could have seen my scope out in the field at this, you would have realized like. Uh, for me to shoot, I feel like I would have had to have it in my scope. That's how <laughs> wobbly I think I was. But it, it was something that, uh, you know, I, I might, feel like I feel like Spencer might have like an aim issue. Like he's really worried about <laughs> when he aims things because earlier today, <laughs> earlier today, I think you might be right. <laughs> we were we we're filming stuff today, so Spencer was wearing a, a microphone, like one of the wireless mics, and he, he's gonna go to the bathroom. So he stops and talks to our production team. He says, "Hey, how do I take this thing off? You know, I gotta go to the bathroom." And they're like, "Well, you could just do this or whatever." But he's like, "Oh, you know, it's just fine. We're not gonna listen or anything." So Spencer goes in the bathroom. <laughs> Comes back out and the microphone's like obliterated. It's in, three I don't know. It's, in, it's in three different pieces. We're like, what? What did you do in there? And he goes, Well, you know, I have to get completely naked before I pee in the bathroom. Shoes off and everything. Uh, it looks like a toddler went to the bathroom. There's just a trail of clothes leading. And the last thing you see is Spencer's underwear hanging off the doorknob. <laughs> So, yeah, I feel like that must be because you're worried about your aim. You don't want to get anything on your pants, right? It must be. It must be. Uh, I'm going to let that linger. We're not going to tell you whether that's true or not. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that was eye-opening for me. That like uh, Yeah. Just, just like somebody with their bow, people preach this all the time, like practice from uncomfortable positions, like practice sitting down, practice sitting up, or standing up, practice drawing while you're like bent over and then you have to, you know, straighten your back or whatever. And like I think archers who are – Serious are really good about doing that, but a lot of gun hunters aren't. Like, I, I, after that, I went out and I started practicing shooting off a of fence post and practice, you know, shooting off of leaning off of a tree and freehand and everything else. Because, like I said, I was just too dependent on that bipod. It made it, uh, like, I just got lazy with doing everything else because I, I thought every shot would come easy off those two sticks where you have a really hard time messing up. Yeah. You, you know what that reminds me of, kind of like what you're talking about? Is like if you're in a turkey blind or if you're in just a hub stop blind 
and you have your decoys or your shot set up in front and you know that turkey comes in behind you and you have to open the window and scoot around and shoot you screw that up every time every time because it's not like the simple easy thing that you but you should probably be sitting in your yard practicing for that yeah you know well that's this gets a little woo woo but i think it has helped me a lot i and we talked about this with somebody recently maybe it was john dudley or i don't know who it was but visualization like what i get into a tree every time I visualize, actually imagine watching a deer come walking in front of me into each of the different places I think a shot might happen. And I, imagination station, watch this buck come walking across <laughs> into that lane. I will practice drawing back, imagine, imagining, stopping him, um, and making sure I can actually draw back, making sure I can move into position and think through everything I'll do. And I try to do that each time in like three, four different locations in the tree. You got a lot of time usually sitting up in the tree. That's a great yep. way to use it in a productive fashion. And I do think like your brain operates a lot more smoothly when it's gone through a scenario. Yep. And even if it's faked, even if you were just visualizing it, like there's so many examples of this outside of just hunting, but in like the sports world in all these different fields, this stuff really does help your mind perform under pressure in the real scenario if you've already walked it through in your head. So I can't recommend doing that enough. Yeah, I do that all the time. All the time when I'm in a tree stand, aim at leaves that are, yeah. you know, 175-inch bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think so, too. I, I, I'm going to vote n- not woo-woo. I'm, I'm going to vote that's real world, okay, good. good, solid advice. Good. All right. I, I've got the Tony Peterson stamp of approval. The not woo-woo stamp. <laughs> the not woo stamp. Um, uh, so not woo-woo, but we're still talking about state of mind issues. Spencer, <laughs> you're really aggressive with certain things like related to clothing and using the bathroom and whatnot. I just imagine I couldn't stop thinking about like what this would be like. Does he like really like petitely drop everything? No, he or doesn't. Is he yeah. <laughs> He's he like run, an animal. He runs into the bathroom. Really He's like an animal that was never supposed to have clothes on in the first place. Yep. And what's weird is, is, is this the same guy that thinks that bobcats and turkeys mate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got a lot of quirks, Tony. There are, there are people who have told me that bobcat turkey thing was the single best thing they've ever heard on a podcast ever. It so was. Spencer, he's a, he's, a, he's a genius. Content machine. He yeah. brings some really special things to the yeah. table. <laughs> <laughs> But what I'm trying to get to here is that you told us that you have had issues with being not aggressive enough. That's a failure of the past. Is that something worth speaking to? Yeah. I I think if you are somebody who kind of like learns whitetail hunting from magazines and watching TV and stuff like that, you see this pattern of these hunters have this property that has an area that you don't hunt until the rut. And basically, you know, if you can hunt in September, you're hunting field edges. If you can hunt October, you're only hunting evenings and maybe a little bit in the timber. But then, like, once it comes November, then you can hunt your better spots. And, uh, like, without having a kind of a real-world mentor for whitetail hunting, I, I thought, okay, that's what you do. That That's what you do. And so... My first couple years bow hunting, I had some success. I killed a few deer um, doing just that. And I'm like, well, that's that's the answer. That's what it is. But then I struck out for like three years after that, and, and I learned that I was not being near aggressive enough. And it wasn't until like um, <clears throat> kind of removed myself from 
those sources of information that like it's this you know very practiced uh like amount of pressure that you should apply or whatever like that that's still relevant you have to be smart about when you pick and choose to hunt um but i've had a lot of like eye-opening conversation with tony for example about he is very aggressive when it comes to hunting and and i need to certainly do more of that and like Seven or eight years ago, I had to do way more of that because I wasn't even close to being aggressive. Yeah. I was doing just uh, like the things that you should, like I said, field edges and then just the evenings and then maybe a morning and, and stuff like that. And like if you have a certain set of circumstances, that works really well, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's all about like reading your situation. Right. And finding that balancing act, right? Like what is necessitated here and what, what can you get away with? What can't you get away with? Yeah. There are scenarios like, you know, I mean – we're talking about like the Drury's or the Lekoski's mm-hmm. or something like that. If you've got these huge farms, yeah. you can control everything, yep. you can keep the pressure low. That methodology that they use, <laughs> you can't argue it doesn't work for them. Yeah. Right? And, and like, but it's just not relevant to everybody else. Yeah. Systems. 10 or 15 years ago, that was kind of the only information available. Not, not literally the only stuff, but that was so much of yeah. what you saw. But now there's a lot more guys that speak to you kind of that aggressive style of hunting you hear about it with you know the hunting beast and uh, people like tony and the hunting public guys um like i'm not saying that is completely the answer either but there's a balancing act and i wasn't there for my first few years of bow hunting yeah. and that was certainly a problem that's well, been that's, like the, oh, sorry. sorry that's a i mean that's just a symptom of getting your information from the wrong place I mean, and like you said, you didn't really have a choice, but you always have to like vet where this is, the advice is coming from, you know. And I, I like I always use the example like if if Mrs. Peterson got hit by a bus tomorrow and I got dating advice from Brad Pitt, it probably wouldn't be relevant to me, right? Like he probably had an easier life <laughs> going after the ladies than I would, and so it wouldn't it's a great even. Analogy. It would be like you know when when somebody who lives on a thousand acres or four thousand acres in southern Iowa says, you know hunt your food plots, leave these sanctuaries alone and move in. Like that plan is awesome for them. It's a good idea. And like Mark said, if you have that, go ahead. You know, like we know that that's the best way to do it. Most people don't have that. You know, if you're hunting public land in Pennsylvania, that's like, that is absolutely worthless advice to you basically. And so it's like a matter of just, and that's why these guys like the hunting public and stuff have got so popular. They're showing you like, Here's here's your world, guys. Here's what we're doing in your world, and you go, yeah. holy cow! You know, it's it's amazing, and it, you know they're still doing stuff differently, and you know taking different tactics and stuff. But it just opens up the world to like more relevant advice to each of our situations. I think, and I think though a key thing, at least that I have taken, is like my favorite thing about doing this podcast over all these years is getting to talk to so many different people who have all had a whole lot of success. And many of them do it in wildly different ways. Like there's so many different ways to do it. And I still believe that it's not worthless to get advice from the Lukoskis, <laughs> even if you don't. He's pointing at me, by the way, for, for the listeners who can't. <laughs> just because he said that. And, I, and I, because in the same period, like I don't hunt um, the same stuff that Dan Infeld hunts maybe. But I'm still going to take something. I think you can take something from everybody mm-hmm. as long as you pass it through a filter. I, I would say take, consume it all. Take it all, break it apart, like pick it apart. Hear what Mark Drury has to say. Hear what Dan Infold has to say. Hear what Tony Peterson has to say. Hear what Spencer Newharth has to say. And think critically about it. Why does this work for them? What is the situation that allows those things to lead to success? What does that mean for my situation? What could I take from Tony? What could I take from Spencer? 
what could I take from Joe Blow in Florida? I mean, I, I think that I think that you can learn a little bit from everything, even if they come from different circumstances. Because if I only ever pay attention to guys that did exactly the same way that or in exactly the same place as me or situation, I do think you're missing out on some interesting things. Um, so it's just like you got to have that filter. Yeah, and I think if the if the script was flipped and a decade ago, my uh, like. I wasn't only watching the Lukoskis and the Drewrys and stuff like that, and it had been the super aggressive hunters, like the hunting public or something, that probably wouldn't have been that beneficial either. Yeah. Like only knowing that kind of guerrilla style yep. hunting. So it's like, yeah, I was way, way too passive to start off with, and once I realized that I needed to be more aggressive, that was certainly a turning point, and it was a failure to not be more aggressive for those yeah. first few years. And I'm right there with you, too. I did the same thing, and I'm still, like, definitely, I definitely err towards be careful. I, de- I have a tendency to want to go careful first and ease my way into things. I've been trying to test more and more of the aggressive things, but I definitely have that same predisposition. But where, or for, for either one of you, like, what's your litmus test internally for knowing what's how far do you push it like i don't know if you have, if there's it's hard to like say that without a specific example but is there any example either one of you guys can speak to to help us understand like how you judge how aggressive is aggressive enough versus not is there a story or experience that I, would speak to that i could say for me personally it's almost always a matter my my aggressive strategy is almost always a matter of getting in on some fresh sign and setting up at the edge of where I think it's good. And so mine's I, like, I do like a lot of one, two things. So I want to observe. And so I, I force myself to get in, but like cautiously get in to watch. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not relying on trail cameras or anything. I want to see with my own eyes and I'll, I'll be hunting. And once in a while you do kill one doing that. But usually that's like the, the half step. You know, like then you got to see what's going on and then move in and get aggressive. And if I see something I like, then I get really aggressive. But it's always kind of like a measured observation thing. Not always, but a lot of times. And then it's like, okay, you're right or wrong or you found it or you didn't. And then if you find it, you go. Yeah. Another big thing I'm always thinking about is like, what do I have to lose? And that changes at different parts of the year. That that changes on different types of hunts. So if I'm like on a short seven-day hunt and I'm three days in, what do I have to lose at this point? Well, I got three more days. Worst case scenario, I blow it off for the next three days. But I don't have that much time left. While if I'm hunting a small property in Michigan that I have the next three months I'm supposed to be hunting and I'm depending on this as my maybe as my best spot, then if I have two and a half months left, I got a lot to lose if I get super aggressive right now. So I'm constantly trying to think, what do I have to lose and how high are the odds of success? It's this constant like scale. And I got to sit there and I have to try to analyze what's on the left side of the scale, what's on the right side of the scale. And sometimes of year or in some situations, you're okay with it being off balance, sometimes not. But I think that does take a little bit a personal experience to start un- to understand. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's entirely tied to how much land you have to roam. Yeah. You know, if you if you only have twenty acres and you're in the suburbs somewhere, an aggressive, you know, throw your ghillie suit on approach is <laughs> probably a bad idea. Yeah. You know, if you live somewhere where you got a couple thousand acres of public land or fifty thousand acres, and go nuts, man, start yeah. crawling. Yeah. Know? And I would guess that like your aggressive hunting style is really a product of kind of being a traveling. DIY guy, you have five days in this state, so you can't really afford to be passive. Um, it's it's partially that. I mean, that's where I learned it. 
mm-hmm. you know, but it's, I do that at home too. And I do it in Minnesota. I do it in Wisconsin to, to, to some extent, maybe not quite as aggressively, but it's more, a, it's more a matter of having two little girls at home and not, you know, like I don't ever have a month, you know, to sit on and wait for the right conditions. You know, it's, it's almost always like a short duration thing for me. And so it's, it's a matter of, you know, if I play it too cautious, I don't have anything going on a lot of times. Yeah. And like when I lived in South Dakota, I would be fairly cautious and stuff. But if it got down to the wire and it was, you know, the last three or four days of gun season, I had a gun tag that I was really excited about. I would get as aggressive as doing soft deer drives that we talked about on this video series, Um, you know, just like blowing deer out of sanctuaries that a lot of people would consider taboo. But in that situation, I felt like that's what it calls for. Yeah. I blow a lot of deer out of sanctuaries too, but no, <laughs> there's nobody posted at the end of them. <laughs> Tony, when you end a hunt, like you, one, of these, let's say one of these traveling hunts, mm-hmm. when you end a hunt and you didn't kill a buck, eight times out of ten, if you could put your finger in something, why? Why didn't you kill a buck? <sighs> is there some typical thing you could speak to, like this is usually the issue or this is usually why? Uh, most of the time it's riding a dead program too long. You know, if you only have four or five days and, you know, you get locked into the research you did and you show up and especially if there's like, you know, some ground truth to it where there's some sign there, it's, that's the danger of it is like, you know, it's sometimes it's hard enough to get a plan A and to have a quality plan B can be really hard. So you talk yourself into that, but you know, like I, I should probably talk about like, if we're talking a failure episode, and a mistake episode. I think my biggest mistake I've made as a bow hunter so far, and that has led to probably my most consistent failures is ever deciding I was going to hunt the big woods of Wisconsin. (laughs) I'm, and I like, that sounds like a joke, but really I'm sitting here like just about in tears because I get my butt kicked over there all the time. And it's like, it's, it's like got in me. Like you're talking about this North Dakota stuff and I'm listening to you and I'm like, man, that's so easy compared to, you know, like, <laughs> but it's different. It's just different. You know, it's like, like the antithesis of each other. It is, like, and it, but it's just solid timber versus a state that, you know, the state tree is the telephone pole. So yeah, say. it's so different. And it, you know, it's a matter of experience, but when I go, I've like, I've made up my mind to hunt these big wood bucks on public land. I'm mostly on public land. Once in a while I hunt private, but it's like, uh, I will, I will scout in the spring. I'll scout in the summer. I'll, I'll put in more work there than any other state I've got, Minnesota, whatever. And I will think, okay, this is the year. Like I've, I've seen them in the hay fields next to the private, you know, I found the rubs, I found the staging areas, maybe I saw a big one, because I've, I've seen a few big ones up there on public land, but I go hunt, and it's like, you know, this guy comes by on four-wheeler to go refresh his bait site, or, you know, the, the wolves come through or something, and it just, or I just, you know, I get busted by those crafty does up there, like, it's just, it's the hardest thing that I do year to year for deer, and I just don't, I like, I almost can't get it right. Once in a while I do, but I've never killed a big one up there. And it's just like, the, it's like the place I go just to fail. <laughs> like I, I just know, and I, I mean, I'm talking, you know, I, I'll spend more time during the rut there 
than anywhere. And that my odds of killing anything are so much lower than everywhere else I could be. And I keep driving across that goddamn river and I keep going over there and <laughs> hunt. And I just, it's just one of those things. Like it's just a stubborn thing. And it, you know, my mistakes over there, uh, it, maybe that's what bothers me the most is I feel like I, I feel like I'm not, I feel like I'm putting in the work and it's not happening. Like it's, it's like when you're 15, you know, and you've been bow hunting for three years and you're like, I'm sitting in the tree stands. Like I'm doing the same things everybody else is doing. Why is this not happening for yeah. me? You're like the dog chasing the car. Oh my God. I'm like a, blind, a lot of effort. I'm like a blind three-legged dog chasing a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of these days you're going to cross an intersection and get T-boned. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, my wife, my wife will joke every year. I'll say like, usually by like about November 15th, I'm like, do not ever let me go back to Wisconsin. I'll go over there to duck hunt, grouse hunt, whatever. If I tell you I'm going deer hunting, to divorce me, leave me. I don't care. Like, <laughs> make make the stakes real. Uh-huh. And every year, I go back. Are you going back this year? I'm going back, and I got a new theory. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've got this. There's this this area of managed forest land, and it's. Um, it's gotten pretty big now. I don't know if it's the same timber company or not, but it's it's private land enrolled into the tax program, so it's public, you know, and they log it. And so it's various, you know, you and I were talking, Mark and I were talking about uh, fire burns up in the, the Boundary Waters and, you know, where we're at in, in Wisconsin, a lot, a lot of stuff is centered around the clear cuts. And this this timber company keeps cutting the clear cuts and there's, you know, there's old growth and new growth and five-year-old growth. And there's a lot of deer in there. And every once in a while, I'll lay eyes on just a pig in there. Like just a, I mean, I saw one a couple years ago that was when, when I first laid eyes on him, I'm like, that's at least 160. Jeez. And, and I'm talking legit big bucks. And I'm just, I think I'm just, I'm, I'm going to go way later this year. I'm going to go right before the gun season. I'm going to hunt the middle of November. I'm going to not going over there on Halloween. I'm not doing any of that BS. I'm going to go for that time, like where that big mature buck might be cruising right before. And, you know, the wild card there is you can bait. And so I want to just go catch them cruising. So I'm not running a corn pile, but there's 5 million corn piles out there from gun hunters. And so it's like a, it's like a wild card thing. But what I see is those bucks get real wise to those spots anybody can drive an ATV to, and they seem to stay in those, those you know, five-year, seven-year-old clear cuts. And so my plan, my new plan after getting my butt kicked is I'm focusing on that stuff at that specific time, all day sits for like five or six days, and I'm just going to roll the dice on a big one screwing up then. And Interesting. I'm already, I already can feel like it's going to suck. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm already like, I know that might sound like sort of convincing, but I have so little confidence it's going to work. I could totally relate those, just like <laughs> the big woods in Northern Michigan. I mean, that's oh, exactly, dude. I've grown up there pounding my head against a wall, wondering why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? So yeah, I've, I've wondered the same, same things and struggled with the same things. I haven't put in, you know, not as much time as it sounds like you're putting in. Like, I'm not devoting my best days of the rut to it. I'm there the handful first days of gun season. Um, but, but yeah, I've started, I, I did some, last year I spent a little bit more time on our big wood stuff, and I did kind of like a scout and hunt into this public stuff that I'd never gone this far back before. I tried to get way back into this swampy stuff that's like smack dab in the middle of two roads, like the farthest point from both of those roads. There's a big creek that runs through and I got dammed up by beavers a long time ago and it's still kind of a big marshy area because of that. 
And so I headed in there and kind of was scouting my way in and came across, like, there's not many deer in the area in general. So when you see sign, like any sign, that's like a positive thing. You don't see stuff littered everywhere. So I see a rub, see another rub. And I realized there's like a little bit of an island with some evergreens that I'm on here. And there's another rub around here and a scrape and a rub. And I found more concentrated buck sign in this little patch than I've ever seen in my 25 years that I can remember hunting and hiking around in there. Like, a, like I, it looked to me like right away, all right, this is looked like a bedroom. Mm-hmm. This is a buck bedroom way deep in here. And it was an island in the swamp? Not, I wouldn't call it a swamp. It was a little piece of high ground. I wouldn't call it swampy enough to be swamp, but it was just off the edge of the swamp. So mm-hmm. imagine like standing water and then I'm back like 40 yards from that. It's slowly getting a little yep. higher, a little higher. And then like a little knoll almost of evergreens. Um, and then like some just thick junk right in there. And it was just ripped to shreds. And I could see bucks, you could see rubs following that edge, like a soft edge to the swamp edge to like where the hard timber began. And that's a spot. A little, I want to get in there this year and uh, try to hunt that actually during the rut and see what's going on around there back in that gnarly stuff. Because I, I've, I've started trying to find like these soft edges. Yep. Find either like what looks like a concentrate. I've never found concentrations like this, but I was hoping to find something like that and or just like these internal soft edges and try to hope that someone's going to cruise along or something will be moving through there. And that's the best idea I can come up with at this point. Uh, I'll be curious to hear how that plays out because I've found a few. I've got one island in a in a swamp over in you know in a, a real lowland over in Wisconsin. That if I go out there, you know, grouse hunting or something late season when it's frozen, and you can just walk out to it. It's like that. You just walk into it and you're like, holy cow! But hunt, I've tried to like figure out how to bow hunt it. And it's just such an advantageous spot for that deer to bed. I think it's just one of those places that, you know, a big big guy lives there for a while. He dies off wolves, get him whatever, and then another one moves in. I think That's, it's just like that yeah. spot. And I have yet to figure out how to capitalize on it, but it's like it's just there, like mm-hmm. taunting me. So I'll, my, I'm curious to hear how that goes for you. My thought process, I'm going to try to go in there like the first day I can walk in like three hours before daylight or whatever it is way before daylight get in there so i'm not going to push them out and just be set up and set all day and just hope that maybe there happens to be a buck still there that comes either maybe he doesn't actually live right there maybe that was just happenstance last year but maybe i'm in a spot that i haven't been in the past that for some reason a buck really likes to spend a bunch of time and then cruise through or come maybe he is maybe comes back and beds there and It'll probably be a spike, but <laughs> knowing knowing this, it'll area, be a big body, good eating big spike. Body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we'll see. But yeah, a lot of failure in those big wood situations is tough. Yeah. I, I, I was gonna try to do, um, and it looks like it's gonna be pushed to next year. But I'm gonna try to do a big woods northeast hunt, tracking them in the snow. Mm-hmm. That's an idea that I think is really cool. So yeah, I was gonna do that this year, pushed a year, but it's still on my schedule going to try that. And, and maybe that'll be the way to do it all the time in Michigan. Now. Maybe you're, I'll start. You're talking with a rifle, right? Yeah. 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 So that could be a pretty cool way to do it. Um, we've really, I feel like, embarrassed ourselves, laid ourselves out there as, <laughs> as horrible, failure-ridden hunters. Maybe no one's going to listen to this podcast any or ever again. This might have been our greatest, our greatest mistake of all was telling these things. Yeah. <laughs> credibility gone. Yeah, credibility vanished. Um, but before we wrap it, is there any other final thing that popped up in your guys' minds that you wanted to um, get out there or speak to? 
Um, I think if I had a concluding thought, I would say to all the listeners, just understand that everybody you see out there doing this sucks at it most of the time. <laughs> like understand that, that that's just reality. We Everybody gets it wrong way more than they get it right. Yeah. Yeah, you said 1% before, and that seemed generous for like how often a person is successful because a lot you of You think I overshot it? Uh, it seems maybe a little bit generous. I, I think if you're talking the general hobby, general hunting population for you know every day they hunt versus killing, it's probably way high. Well, maybe I don't know. Depends on what they're trying to kill too, though. Yeah, yeah, if we're that's true. The, if you're trying to kill a, a mature buck, then yeah, I bet you one percent. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. If you looked at how many times, like how many five day hunts do you go on, Tony? That you kill buck, a mature buck, uh, on average, or a week long hunt, whatever. A mature buck, maybe one to two a year. Yeah. Some good, a really good year, maybe three or four, and that's like a you're you're thumping your chest for a while. So that's you're not, hitting at least like fifty percent on most years, then. For mature bucks, no, I probably hunt hunts, not actual. Sorry, not days hunted, but trips, tags filled. Oh, I, I fill a lot of tags, but I have pretty low standards in right. a lot of places. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a, when you're talking to me, there's a big difference between talking mature bucks and talking just killing stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I figured it out one time with my hunting buddies on our out-of-state trips a few years ago. And just overall for mule deer, antelope, uh, and primarily whitetails, just my little group of guys, we, w- we were at like 50%. Yeah. And that was that was ranging from unbelievable awesome animals to little spikers scraps or does or something so it was just like wide range yeah you know if you're if you're talking three and a half or four and a half or better you're talking real small percentage and then you you knock it down from very experienced guys like you guys to most folks don't hunt that much yeah much 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 lower percentage i'm sure so your point's well taken (laughs) good (laughs) good (laughs) spencer uh tony earlier you brought up like buck fever Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you addressed like where you're at now. And I know you've written an article for Meat Eater about this, like yep. how to suppress buck fever. So what did you learn from that process and like where are you at now with your buck fever status? I am I'm so much better now. But I like it just it's once in a while, like I, I was telling you when I was in Oklahoma last year, I had a unbelievable non-typical come in on public land came running in chased the doe and i just flat out missed him didn't i just rushed it dumb you know and so i'm not immune to it Mm -hmm. but if i'm sitting on my tree stand and you know i see a buck walking in and it's just a normal decent scenario even if they come cruising in a lot of times i mean what i do like mark was talking about visualization i started to think about deer as targets like when i see them like and not like in a like a demeaning way or anything like i look at them and i go I wouldn't miss you. You throw a Reinhardt or a Glendell out there. I'm not missing that sucker yeah. at 20. You know, like you could do that if you look at them that way. And actually, a lot of times the deer are bigger than the targets. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you wouldn't miss that with a thousand arrows, but you could miss that when it's got a heartbeat. And so, like, I start looking at them and I think, like, you know, you're sitting on that bean field and that buck walks like, like you wouldn't, you would never miss a target there. So this is like some self talk. Do you act like in your head, like Tony, you got this. You never I, miss. Like, do, I, do you do that? I oh my god. I'm yeah. I sure do. I mean, that's why I'm glad we're having therapy because I've yeah. had a lot. <laughs> like I've had a lot of therapy in my life, so I'm like, this is this is nice. This is yeah, I, I literally in my head, I'm like, good. I'm not like 
do not screw this up. I'm yeah. like, you know you can do this. Come on, yeah. buddy. Like, look at that. That If that yeah. was a target. I you, do that. Yeah. I do self-talk like yeah, that. I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too obvious. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, though. So, but to, to answer Spence's question here, like, we're talking years and years and years and lots of hunting to get there, like, to get over that. And I'm not, I'm not over it. I'm just so much better than I was, but like I was bad, you know? So, I mean, it, it took me and it, you know, the other thing about that, you know, solving that issue, you know, I, I interviewed Randy Elmer for that and Randy's so freaking accomplished, you know, and his, his thing was target practice somehow with something at stake. So yeah. shoot a competition, shoot against your buddies, you know, get, get yourself in the headspace where like you want to win, you want to concentrate on that shot. And there was a lot more to it, but for me, that was part of it. But also just watching more and more deer, doing more photography and scouting as much as I could in the summer and just sitting back and glassing these bucks. Because I think that's the thing. Like we don't, we don't spend any time around them, you know, like that we think about them all the time and we do not like, you don't spend, like you don't walk out into the parking lot here and, you know, pet 150 inches. They're not there. Like you don't see those Well, this deer. is Montana, Tony. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I'm not, I'm not as sold on Montana as I used to be after this trip. I've been running into some... <laughs> <laughs> some rough people, man. Um, that's a different, that's, that's fodder for a different uh, podcast. But I think just like seeing them and kind of demystifying that and going, man, they're, they're just, they're out there doing their thing. They're not these crazy sixth sense, super smart things that we give them credit for. I don't believe that for a second. Like, I think they're just surviving machines. Yeah, survivors. Yeah. So watch them. Spencer, any other thoughts or no, no, I like that way of thinking about it, but like, some buck fever is fun too. Like those are the funnest moments I think of the entire year, that 10 seconds or that minute leading up to the shot. Uh, and it can be like kind of healthy too. Sometimes it like really focuses you in. Now it's not healthy or fun if it's uh, debilitating, yeah. you know, um, but I, I don't feel like I'm there, but I, I enjoy that rush, you know, right before that happens. Yeah, I just want the mega rush after the shot. <laughs> want to make sure like the shaking yeah. and freaking out, that part of it, the debilitating part, you want to have happen yeah. after the release. There are right? people out there who claim that. I'm not one of them. I I get it at all points. Of- <laughs> so knock, knock on wood. No, I have my issues and they're well documented. Like my issue has been rushing shots, like like the, the pin gets on target and I'm shooting it. And it's almost like out of my controls. It's my issue has been the past. But knock on wood, the last five or so years, like I haven't had the like shaking, freaking out, like leaning up to I have not had that. I I, I had one well, that was even different. I had one time where my legs went out of control. Like <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. I got stuck. What does that mean? Like I got stuck at full draw on a buck. So I drew back. The buck was one step in my shooting lane, and then he stopped and was staring at me up in the tree. Like, I was in a spindly-ass tree, and it was like, the only thing I could do was, like, a hang-and hunt, like, two in the morning, two hours before daylight, hung the stand. Um, so the buck's right there, draw back, and he's staring at me. And then I was doing, like, the whole self-talk thing. Like, all right, you got this. Just hold on. Hold on. He'll, he'll put his head down and move. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. And then, like, it lasted too long. I'm like, I don't know if I can hold it. I don't know if I can hold it. And then all of a sudden, like, my legs just turned into, like, spaghetti in the wind. Just like, <laughs> and I swear to God, so much so that I thought to myself, he sees your legs. You're, the buck's going to run away because he sees your legs moving so much. I literally was like, you need to get your legs under control. You need to get, you're going to lose this buck because he sees you. And fortunately enough, 
he took one more step and I was able to get a good shot. Your but legs that, really disagreed though. The, the legs were really off. You don't have this, Mark. No. This this isn't easy. It was internal conflict unlike <laughs> anything I've ever experienced before. <laughs> um, so I, I think my final thought would just kind of echo a little bit what Tony said, which is just like the whole reason why I want to have this conversation, why I'm glad it got brought up this morning and kind of just our chats was the fact that it's just it's just a reality of it. Like hunting is full of these failures, these mistakes, these shortcomings. Every single one of us has these. Every, whether you're a new hunter or the most experienced hunter in the world, you're going to screw up more often than not. And that's okay. You should look at those as opportunities, not as failures, but hey, okay, I just learned something that doesn't work very well. (laughs) I just (laughs) identified something I can improve on. That's an opportunity. So even though it sucks in the moment and it's it's common and easy and I do it, I'm really hard on myself when these things happen, but it's it, address it, identify it, and then quickly figure out how can you address it. And I think that's the way to remove as much of the suck as possible is by making progress because nothing, or at least in my opinion, not many other things feel as good as fixing a failure, as growing from that and then being able to look back and say, I totally screwed this thing up last year and look how much better I did this year. That like personal growth is one of the very most powerful things in life, I think. North Dakota 2019. Yep. It's all riding on that. Yeah. So <laughs> with that uh, with that in mind, I've noticed that Spencer's starting to unbutton his shirt. He's got to go to the bathroom here. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks. he took a sock off five minutes ago. <laughs> thanks for listening. And, uh, Spencer, get out of here. Okay. So that will do it. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one as we regaled you with all sorts of screw-ups we made over the years. Um, my hope with it, as I already said, was that this maybe can help everyone out there realize that you are not alone when those mistakes and those roadblocks and those obstacles come along. We are all right there with you. You can get through it, you can learn from it, and you can grow. That is our goal. That's what we're hoping comes from this podcast for each one of us, even personally. So keep that all in mind. Hopefully you're making some progress out there in the woods, getting ready for the season, which is going to be here in just a matter of weeks. I can't believe it. I'm excited. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.